Good afternoon again. And uh, as we begin here this morning, I just, I just feel like I, I wanted to let you know just how difficult this message has been. I, I think some of you have been waiting for me to finally get to the issue of divorce and remarriage for the last seven weeks uh, that I've been preaching. So the, the last seven times that I've preached, this is now message seven of uh, our series on marriage. And we come now to the issue of marriage and divorce, which is what initially kind of broke us off from Matthew onto uh, this topic. What does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? Now, this is difficult for a number of reasons. One is that the Bible actually doesn't say that much about marriage and divorce. There's about six or seven. Uh, I was reading another book just even later in my study this afternoon, and, and he had nine passages on the issue, but he included some other passages just on marriage. But there's about six or seven passages on this issue in Scripture. Another reason is that there are multiple views on how to interpret these passages, and there's persuasive arguments on both sides. And these arguments involve things like the historical background on how marriage and divorce worked in the ancient Near East in Jesus' day and in Moses' day. And because we don't understand this background as maybe as much as we would like, we have even more difficulty in understanding the correct view. I want to start here th- this afternoon by by saying that there's four views on the issue, and uh, I've put them in the outline for you. There's the first view, we could call it, is the no divorce, no remarriage view. Uh, this view says that there is no time when somebody could get divorced, and there is no time when remarriage is allowed, although they would allow remarriage when the death of a spouse occurs. This is sometimes called the permanence view of marriage, if you've maybe heard about it or studied it a little bit. And those who hold this view would argue that divorce is never permitted, except in the case of a death of a spouse, and nor is remarriage permitted. In their understanding, all divorce is sin, and so if, and if there is no divorce, then obviously there can be no remarriage, right? If divorce isn't allowed, then obviously you can't be getting married again. The second view is divorce, but no remarriage. This is sometimes also kind of confusingly called the permanence view. And, and it's very similar, but it recognizes that there, there may be a time when divorce is permitted, allowed, not, not, not encouraged, but there, there may be a time when there, there needs to be divorce, but remarriage is never an option for the Christian. Divorce is never permissible, but, but if it happens under some severe circumstances, then remarriage is not an option. And for, for those first two views for our discussion today, we, we'll pretty much group them together. Now, this was the view of most, if not all, of the early church until the time of the Reformation. And, and I, I hope to say more about that later, about the, the history of the, of the doctrine, but this is also the minority view today. This is kind of the, the lesser held view amongst Christians. Now, the third view is that divorce and remarriage are allowed for only two things, and that is for adultery 
or desertion of an unbeliever. Now, this is the majority view today of evangelical believers. And this view originated around the time of the Reformation, although those who would hold to this view would probably want to add that they also believe that this is the view of Jesus and Paul. Now, of course, all of the views that we're going to present are going to think that their view is the right view. But this view believes there's only two reasons when divorce is permissible, and when divorce is permissible, remarriage is permissible as well. With this view, divorce is permissible when the other spouse commits adultery. Divorce is not encouraged, but it's allowed under that scenario. So when another spouse commits adultery, that is such a uh, an attack on the marriage relationship that there's an option for the spouse again, who was, you know, who was committed, who, to whom adultery was committed against. I don't know how to say that. Um, in that view, when, when another spouse commits adultery, divorce is allowed, not necessarily encouraged, but allowed. And, uh, and then the other reason divorce is allowed under this view is if the, if an unbeliever abandons the marriage. So if you are, you know, you're living your life in sin with your, with your spouse, maybe you're married. Now you get saved and the unbeliever doesn't want to have anything to do with you now that you're saved. They want to leave that marriage. This view would understand that if the unbeliever leaves that marriage, then the believer in that case is free to remarry. Now I, I should just say that there's, there's some who hold this view who only believe Divorce and remarriage is allowed for one or the other of those reasons, but most who see the the one as okay also agree with the other. Now, there's a, a fourth view, and it's probably more popular than than I would even want to admit. But it's 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 a and I just kind of called it. It's a it's a catch-all divorce and remarriage for additional reasons, and and so beyond those two clearly articulated reasons in scripture of a fourth group would would just kind of want to broaden that and say that there's there might be other reasons where you could get a divorce and be remarried and primarily under this view would be the the view that in the case of some kind of an abusive situation divorce and then even remarriage would be allowed so those are the four views, and, and really, those are the only four views on this issue. There's, there's only four views on this issue. The question for us, though, today is which view is biblical? Only one view can be correct, right? Only, only one or none of these views could be correct. I, I think the four views basically cover all of our options, and so one of these is only correct. It's either permissible to get a divorce or it isn't. If the divorce is permissible, you can either get remarried or you can't. Now, before we work through this, I, I want to challenge you a bit. You've likely had some teaching on this issue before, right? I, I think for most of you, there's been some amount of teaching on this issue before. And I understand this is a, a key doctrine, what I'm going to say in the community. This is kind of a, a key, important doctrine in the community. And from what I've heard, this doctrine has almost been elevated to a gospel issue. And what I mean by that is, if someone disagrees on this issue, it's seen as a reason maybe not to fellowship with them, or maybe as a reason even in some cases to doubt their salvation. 
And I just want to let you know right up, up front that divorce and remarriage is not the gospel. Divorce and remarriage is not a salvation issue. Divorce and remarriage is not the unforgivable sin. When Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, he died to forgive sins in this area as well. The gospel is not repent and believe the gospel and believe the right view on divorce and remarriage, right? I I think we can all agree to that. I hope we can all agree to that. That is not the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel and my particular view on this or that or, or the other thing. And so if we take the first two views together, we could say the, the no remarriage view, and we put it alongside the remarriage for desertion or adultery view, there isn't really that much difference. Okay, I just want you to think about this a little bit. There, there's not that much difference. One says you can never get remarried, except if your spouse dies. The other says you can only get remarried if your spouse breaks their vows in adultery or if your spouse leaves you because they no longer want to to live with you because of your faith. Both the minority view, view one and two, to kind of tie together, and the majority view, view three, say there is no divorce and especially no remarriage for things like incompatibility, for disagreement, for sin, for mismanaging the home, for wasting all of the family's money. There's no divorce and remarriage for laziness. There's no divorce and remarriage for being uncaring, for being mean, for being unloving, for being hateful, for incompetence, or for any other reason other than, in the one view, adultery or desertion, and in the other view, there's no reason at all. Now, the fourth view, I'm really not going to say very much about that at all because there's really no solid scriptural support as I think we'll see as we go along. So the the fourth view is kind of a, um, in in most cases, it's kind of like a a grace sauce that just says, you know what, because Jesus died, we can just kind of sin and and have sin and and live in sin. So we're not going to even really deal much with the fourth view. Jesus... um, did not die for sin so that we could enjoy sin, right? Jesus died for sin so that we could turn from sin and live our lives to glorify Him. So we're not going to really deal much with that fourth view. But those are the views. Now let's look at, at what at what pretty much everybody agrees on. And so we're just going to kind of go and look at the different passages now. And like I said, there, there, is, there is so much involved in this. I have so much I want to say to you. I don't even know if we have time to say it all, but I, I, I want to try to cover everything and every passage, and I really only want to preach this one time. So we're going to try to get this all done today. So go to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 31. Jesus is speaking, and he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, the the first thing I want to say here is that we need to be open 
to what Scripture teaches on this issue. If our view isn't what Scripture says, we need to adjust our view. And so we need to listen to God here. We, God's view needs to be our view. And, and I hope that we can, we can see what the Scripture says on this today. You know, I came to this study myself this, this last seven weeks not entirely sure what I believed on this issue. I, I came to Grace Bible Fellowship not entirely sure what I believed on this issue. Two of my favorite Bible teachers disagree on this issue. So let's let Scripture try to persuade us, and and let's not let me persuade you, but hopefully Scripture persuades you as we look at this passage and these passages. Next, I want to say we, we need to come to this topic very carefully. You know, it's too easy to come looking for what we want to hear. And I think that's often the case. People come to these passages, maybe in a difficult marriage, and they come looking for what they want to hear. The point of all of the texts that we're going to look at today is to discourage divorce or to encourage faithfulness in marriage. So all of these texts that we're looking at are, are intended to discourage divorce and to encourage faithfulness in marriage. Maybe somebody here is in a difficult marriage. Don't come to these texts looking for a way out of your marriage. Everything in Scripture encourages us to fulfill our vows, to remain faithful to our spouse, to model Christ and the church in our marriages. Matthew 5.32, the verse that we just read, warns that divorce and remarriage is either the cause of adultery or it is adultery itself. Now there's an exception there, and we'll come back to that exception later, but, but, but apart from whatever the exception is, divorce causes the divorced spouse to commit adultery, and marrying a divorced person is an act of adultery. So this is discouraging divorce and remarriage. Divorce in every case, or in almost every case, depending on your view, divorce in, in every case, or in almost every case, is sin against your spouse and against God who witnessed your marriage vows. And that means that even thinking about getting divorced or about being divorced is a sin if you're married. Fantasizing about being married to another person is sin. That's a adultery of the mind. Now let's go to the book of Malachi, which is just the, the previous Old Testament book, chapter 2. And we're, we won't read the whole context there, but just look at Malachi 2 and verse 16. says in the ESV, that's what I'm preaching from right now, the, the ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The New American Standard translates that verse this way. Just listen to this. It says, For I Hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now there's a, a translation issue in, in this text, but whichever way you translate this, either God hates divorce and the man who covers his garment with wrong, or 
The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with wrong or covers his garment with violence. And either way, the following command stands, so guard yourselves and do not be faithless. In other words, beware of this sin and keep your wedding vows. The Israelites in the context of Malachi chapter 2 were divorcing the wives of their youth and presumably marrying other women. Maybe their, their wives were getting a little bit older and so they divorced their wives of their youth and they were marrying maybe new, younger wives. And God says that to do that is an act of violence against your spouse. And so divorce is, is an act of violence against your spouse. It was an act of faithlessness. God wants it, as we've seen in this series, God wants faithfulness to our wedding vows, to our spouses, not faithlessness. Now, divorce and remarriage was a major moral problem in Israel, probably very much like we see in our world today. The Old Testament law didn't really address divorce. It just recognized it as a reality in Israel. There's one section of the law that, that seeks to limit divorce in Deuteronomy 24, and, and that's the passage that Jesus quoted in what we just looked at in, in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 31, remember Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that's from Deuteronomy 24. And so let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and let's look at that passage that Jesus quotes. It says there when a Deuteronomy 24, starting at verse one, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now what this law does is it, it, it prevents divorce. It, it, it's kind of intended to prevent a, a kind of legalized adultery where a man might divorce and then later remarry the same wife. And so you could see how if, if it's kind of preventing some kind of a legalized adultery where I can get a divorce and then I can bring this woman back and then I can get a divorce and I can bring this woman back. And it's, it's making the man who is thinking about getting a divorce realize if I get a divorce from this woman, I can never marry this woman again. And so it makes the man think, and, and if this lady marries another person, I can never marry her again. Now we should notice here, there's actually two reasons, two types of divorce that are mentioned in the passage. In verse 1, the man has found some indecency in her. She finds no favor in his eyes because 
he has found some indecency in her. And then in verse 3, the other man, it says there that he hates her. And the rabbis would differentiate between these two kinds of divorce, these two reasons for divorce. If a divorce was for some indecency, often associated with adultery, if there was, if the divorce was for that reason, the man would be able to keep his dowry, right? The, 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 the bride price, the, the father of the bride would give a, a gift to the man. And, and if the, the lady was sent out for some kind of indecency, he would be able to keep the dowry. But if the divorce was because the man hated her, or if it was for some trivial reason, then he would have to return the dowry in the, in the second case in verse three. And this legislation then also keeps the first husband from taking his wife back for financial reasons. Right? So he's not going to make money on this if, by, by getting another dowry from marrying the same woman. Now, this law isn't a command to divorce. It does, in a sense, permit divorce, but really what it does is it recognizes that divorce was already a problem in Israel when Moses wrote the law. And it's designed to limit then what was already happening. Now, let's turn to Matthew 19 then, where the Pharisees bring up this exact text. They, they bring up Deuteronomy and they're, they want to test Jesus. They had heard Jesus quote Deuteronomy in the Sermon on the Mount, and they wanted to trap him. This is a, a test by the Pharisees. And they want to get him to say something which they can use against him to condemn him. Now, what we need to understand as we come to this is that, that by Jesus' day, there was two primary understandings on divorce. There was two interpretations on Deuteronomy 24. The one view, the majority view, was that divorce was allowed for pretty much any reason. I think I've, I've mentioned that before here, that a, a man could in the one view, could divorce his wife for burning the food, for embarrassing him in front of his friends, for almost any kind of reason. And that was Rabbi Hillel. That was Rabbi Hillel's teaching. He emphasized, when he read Deuteronomy 24, he emphasized, if she finds no favor in his eyes. And so he put the emphasis into there, not on the indecency. And so if she finds no favor in his eyes for any reason, that's indecency. And so that was a valid reason for divorce. Now, another rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, taught that divorce is only permissible in the case of sexual immorality. And when he taught on Deuteronomy 24, he emphasized because he found some indecency in her, which in his view was something like adultery. Now, both groups agreed that remarriage was allowed if the divorce was for a valid reason. And that's really important for us to, to capture. Both views saw remarriage as okay, as fine, if the divorce was for a valid reason. For Shammai, again, the reason would be sexual immorality. For Hillel, almost anything a husband didn't like. And when a husband had a valid reason, he would write a certificate of divorce and he would give it to his wife and then once she had that certificate, both of them were free to remarry. In fact, this 
divorce certificate, this, this writ of divorce, always included the words, quote, you are free to marry any man. And so that's what it would say on the certificate. You are free to marry any man. Now let's look at Matthew 19 and starting at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice he's, he's bringing the, or the Pharisees are, are bringing Jesus into the debate between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for any reason? That was the more liberal view, the more popular opinion in Jesus' day that you could get a divorce for any reason. And they had heard Jesus teach, presumably in the Sermon on the Mount, that divorce, except for adultery or for sexual immorality, was adultery. And Jesus takes these Pharisees who are testing him, he takes them back to God's original design in Genesis, verse 6, so they, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus says, God joined husband and wife together. Man should not separate them. Now the Pharisees think, ah, we've got him now. And they say, why then, Jesus, did Moses say we could get divorced? Why did he say that, that I could write a certificate and, and send her away? And so they think they've got Jesus against the law. They even see, notice that they see Deuteronomy 24 as a command. Why did Moses command? And they think Jesus is now caught going against God's command in Deuteronomy. But Jesus, in effect, says that's not a command to get divorced. That was a concession because of the hardness of your heart. And then in verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And Jesus repeats here basically what he already said in Matthew chapter 5. Divorce and remarriage is an act of adultery. Divorce and remarriage is an act of adultery. Now, now what we want to do is we want to go to the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10. And so I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And, and it starts really in verse 1. And you could just kind of skim your eyes through and, and you'll note that, 
that Mark has almost exactly the same as what Matthew has. Um, It's almost exactly the same. Mark has a a follow-up question from the disciples after after the Pharisees are gone. But Mark also leaves out the exception. And so you can just kind of trace that section with your eyes and see that it's, it's almost the same as what Matthew has, except when you get to verse 10. And in verse 10, it says, And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now notice, again, Mark left out the exception. If you divorce and remarry, it is adultery against your spouse. For the husband or for the wife. Now, wives getting divorces was really unheard of in that time. But whether it's the the husband or the wife, Jesus says, it's an act of adultery. Now, you might have caught that I, I keep saying it's an act of adultery. This is not a continual state of adultery. Commits adultery, where it says that in verse 12, she commits adultery, or verse 11, marries another, commits adultery against her. That is in the present tense, but it's not in the present tense to indicate a continual habitual state of adultery. This is what what grammarians call a a nomic present. And you have no idea. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know what that means. But but here's what a nomic present is. It's used to, quote, make a statement of a general timeless fact. It does not say that something is happening, but that something does happen. The verb is used in proverbial statements or general maxims about what occurs at all times. And then Daniel Wallace says this usage is common. And so this is actually the, the, one of the prime examples in grammar of, what, of this nomic present. And it's not saying that there's this continual habitual state of adultery that's happening in this new marriage, but the act of getting married to somebody who's divorced or the act of divorcing and then remarrying is or or does commit an act of adultery. And so these, these verses are an example of the nomic present. When divorce and remarriage occurs, it's an act of adultery. And every source that I read on on these passages, on the um, the whole marriage and divorce issue, every source that I read believed that it was an act of adultery and not a continual state of adultery. Now, just to settle this, because I, I, I understand that maybe some of you have heard otherwise, just to settle this a little bit, if you've heard otherwise, just think about this. The ancient Near East was, was rampant with divorce and remarriage. And if remarriage was a permanent state of adultery such that one needed to divorce their second spouse and either remain single or be reconciled, Paul or Jesus would have mentioned that directly. Think about the book of Acts. Just think about it this way. In the book of Acts, 3,000 people were saved and they were baptized. And, and then it would say something like, 
And 300 of those had to get divorced so that they could be saved so that they could get out of the adultery that they were in, right? You would, you would think that with, with divorce and remarriage rampant in ancient Israel, that if there was a, a divorce that would have to take place, if a remarriage occurred, that would need to be mentioned somewhere in the New Testament in a, in a clear way. Jesus would have had to tell the woman at the well, you need to go back to your first husband. We'll go to that passage in a little bit. John chapter 4, verse 18. But he would, have, he would have had to say, if you want to drink the living water from me, then you need to get divorced. Go back to your, not your fourth, your third, your second. Go back to your first uh, husband. And now you can have the, this drink of living water that I will give you. And if you think about it, just from the, the Israelites' perspective, Deuteronomy 24 said to the divorced person that they could not go back to a divorced former spouse. That was the law. There was, there was no going back in Deuteronomy 24. And so the, the best view, I think, and, and again, everyone, every book that I read on this issue in the last seven weeks pretty much agrees, or actually 100% agreed, that divorce and remarriage is adultery if it's not, if it's not rightly valid reason but not that it's a continuous act of adultery and not that it would require another divorce in order to make it right. So hopefully that, that, that was helpful for you. So now let's go back here and think about this. Mark doesn't give an exception. If you just had Mark, you wouldn't have the exception. And some people make a big deal about this. They, they say if the early Gentile church only had Mark, or if they only had Luke, Luke 16, 18 is, is basically the same as, the, as what we have in Mark, um, in the verse that we just read in Mark, Luke 16, 18. You can look that up later. They, they say that, again, if the early Gentile church only had Mark, or if they only had Luke, they, would, they wouldn't have known about the exception. And I think that's, that's true as far as it goes. Readers of Mark and Luke would not have known about the exception in Matthew. Now, what often happens then is that someone asks, well, why then did Matthew include the exception? Mark didn't include it. Luke didn't include it. Why did Matthew put it there? And, and, and they'll note then that Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. So th- this is the starting to, to get into the reasoning about this exception here. Go back to Matthew chapter, or go, yeah, go back to Matthew chapter 19. As we kind of go back to Matthew, though, I, I want you to just, let's just go a little bit further back and let's go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 18 on the way. So we're thinking about why does Matthew have the exception? Maybe not Mark, maybe not Luke. So Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now here is a just or a righteous man, and he is pursuing a divorce, but Again, this is the betrothal, and we talked about this when we were in Matthew chapter 1. This is 
like a marriage in that there's a, a commitment to marry, but in the betrothal period, the, the husband and wife, and they were regarded as husband and wife, they did not come together. They did not know one another intimately until after the marriage proper. And so Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and that's something kind of like engagement, like, like we think of engagement. But, but in Israel, this involved, again, making vows to one another. And Joseph, it says, is a just man, he's a righteous man, and he thinks the, the best course of action, because he believes, obviously, until the angel talks to him in the next verses, he believes that Mary has committed some kind of sexual immorality against him, and now she's pregnant and she's going to have a baby. So he's going to divorce her quietly. Now let's go back to Matthew 19 and verse 9 again. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So one view on the exception is that, and and the reason why it's in Matthew and not in Mark, is that it refers to sexual immorality during the betrothal period. It refers to Mary and Joseph, if Jesus wasn't born by the Holy Spirit, to a virgin. And the word translated sexual immorality is is the Greek word porneia. And you can kind of hear our word pornography in that word. It refers to, it's really a broad word that refers to all kinds of sexual sins that I won't mention. Those who hold the no divorce, no remarriage view and the the divorce but no remarriage view think that, that Jesus used porneia instead of the normal word for adultery, to signal that he had betrothal in mind. And they would further say that that Jesus says nothing about remarriage under the exception. And when Jesus' disciples hear his teaching on this, they're shocked. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so they would say, well, there's no remarriage. And so what you have in verse 12 is there's eunuchs who because of a divorce that has happened, they have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And when Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it, he means that every true disciple is going to receive that. And there's kind of parallel statements like that in in Matthew 13 and, and some other places. And so why are the disciples shocked? Well, the, the no remarriage view says it's because they realize that they can never remarry if their wife committed sexual immorality. And they're going to have to be eunuchs. And so they say, well, maybe it's better just to make myself a eunuch right away at the beginning and, and cut out the kind of the trouble in the middle. Now, this view makes sense. This, this betrothal view, this view about the shock of the disciples, it, it makes sense. It's persuasive. 
And, uh, but what makes me lean away from it in my study over the past few weeks is, is that betrothal, if you read the context here, betrothal is nowhere in the context of Matthew 5 or Matthew 19. And so to put this exception only for betrothal seems to ignore the context. The Pharisees are asking about divorcing their wives. They're not asking about the betrothal period. And to my knowledge, if we think of this through all the way and we think it through logically, nobody who holds the betrothal view would forbid remarriage if somebody broke off their engagement. Does that, did you follow that? When the people who hold this view kind of hold it when it's convenient, but nobody who holds the betrothal view that I know of would say that you cannot get married if your spouse broke off the engagement. To break off a betrothal and marry another, if we hold the betrothal view, to, to break off the betrothal and marry somebody else would be an act of adultery. And so if you were, now maybe they would say, well, our engagement's slightly different. But I just want you to see that nobody holds that view. They just say betrothal because it kind of gets them out of the fact that there could be an exception. Now, another view on the exception is that it refers to an incestual marriage. So when, when Jesus comes in and, and we're in verse 1 and he's now into Judea beyond the Jordan, that's the area of Herod. And you remember that Herod had wrongly married his brother's wife and was in an incestual marriage. And so some people who, who believe no divorce, no remarriage, they say the exception would be in the case of somebody like Herod, he should get a divorce and get out of his incestual marriage. If a couple, let's say, gets, gets married and then they realize after the marriage that they are too closely related to one another, th- under this exception and under this view, they would be allowed to get a divorce. Anyone else getting a divorce commits adultery. Now, I think if Jesus is talking about something as specific as an incestuous incestuous marriage, he would use or he would have needed to use more specific terms. Sexual immorality, pornea, can refer to incest, but it's again, it's a much broader term. And actually, historically. Pornea was actually the, the word that was mostly used with women. So if you were talking about a marriage and you were talking about a man and a man was the one who went and committed adultery, you would call that adultery, which is a word that starts with M in Greek. If you were talking about a woman in that same marriage and she's the one who committed adultery, you would usually use the word pornea. And again, the, 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 when it comes to adultery, they would often use the noun. Let me. If I was talking about adultery, I would, I would use the verb for adultery, to commit adultery. But very, very few times in the Greek do they ever use the noun form of the word adultery. They would rather use the noun pornea because that was the more common way to talk okay if that if you could follow any of my grammar stuff then god bless you um but i hope i hope that uh, that that's just again some of these aren't even in my notes but i'm just trying to give you everything that i can 
about divorce and remarriage. Now, when it comes to remarriage in Jesus' culture, again, I, I said this before, but lawful divorce always included remarriage. And that was pretty much the reason why somebody would get divorced, so that they could remarry. Now, if Jesus made an exception where divorce was permissible, and he wanted to teach that the divorce was permissible, but remarriage was not an option, he would have needed to give some more information to his hearers because they would assume at any time there's a divorce that they could get remarried. To, to get divorced included remarriage. And so if Jesus allows divorce under this exception, everyone, whether you were Jew, whether you were Roman, whether you were, you were Greek, you would assume that remarriage was allowed too. And so Jesus, in order to, to inform his hearers that remarriage was not allowed, he would have needed to say, and this does not include remarriage. And so if we go back then and we ask, well, why are the disciples so surprised then in verse 10? I think it's for, for two reasons. One is that Jesus doesn't require divorce in this case. Now, in the ancient Near East, in Roman law or to the Jews, if you, um, if you had, oh boy, I lost my train of thought. Um, in Roman law or in the ancient Near Eastern Jewish customs, Yeah, if your wife, let's say, okay, if your wife committed adultery or had any kind of sexual relations with another man, you had to divorce her. Even in the case of rape, apparently. And so for Jesus' disciples then to understand from Jesus that, that divorce was not required, but that it was permitted in this case, would have been a shocking thing to them. And so I think that's enough to explain their shock. Some people will say something like, well, if, if Jesus is just teaching basically the same thing as Shammai taught, that, that divorce and remarriage was only allowed in the case of adultery, why are they so surprised? And the actual reality is Jesus' view is a little bit stronger than Shammai because Shammai said, you must get a divorce if your wife committed adultery, whereas Jesus is saying, you could get a divorce if your wife committed some kind of adultery or sexual immorality. So with some of that, let me just ask another question. How does one then get a no remarriage view? If, if divorce included remarriage in the ancient Near East, how do you get to this no remarriage view? And, and the argument really comes from verse six of our text in Matthew nine nineteen, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And, and the, the thought that kind of comes behind this and the, the thought that really comes out of Genesis is that marriage is permanent. And so when somebody's committed to the, the reality that marriage is permanent, and then they come to these texts, they think something like this. Well, th this couple is joined together and therefore cannot be separated. And if there's an attempt to separate this marriage, it becomes adultery. 
And that's why, again, that's why invalid divorce is viewed as adultery by Jesus because you can't separate the marriage. And so they, they view marriage as a permanent thing. But I, my understanding is that that's not quite right. The marriage bond is breakable. And even if you look at that text in verse 6, it says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It doesn't say that man cannot separate it. It says, don't separate it, but it could be separated. Divorce does separate the bond. Man can split what God has joined. And just to kind of see this, just listen to John fourteen sixteen. This is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so this woman had no husband. She was not still united to her previous husband or husbands. And it's the idea that the marriage bond or the marriage covenant is, is breakable, or that the view that it's, that it's unbreakable that leads to the no remarriage view. When you view marriage as an unbreakable thing, then it just kind of everything falls into place and you think, well, if there's any kind of remarriage, well, that is, that the, the, the first marriage is still valid, therefore any other marriage is an act of adultery. But even if you think about it, biblical covenants are breakable. And so if you think about the Mosaic Covenant, for example, the Mosaic Covenant is, is the only covenant in the, in the scriptures that's a, that's not an entirely one-sided covenant where, where it involves both God and man. The other covenants, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, those are all guaranteed by God. But the Mosaic covenant was a covenant that required obedience on Israel's part. In the other covenants, God declared what he would do. But in the Mosaic covenant, God declared what he would do. And he also declared what Israel was to do. And Israel broke the covenant. Listen to Jeremiah 11 verse 9. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen. Or again, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so the new covenant is an unbreakable 
covenant where God promises to change His people and to make them and to fit them for His heaven. But the Mosaic covenant was broken when Israel went after other gods. And so covenants, even the marriage covenant, can be broken. And there's two things, at least in my, in my view and my understanding, there's two things that strike at the heart of marriage such that divorce becomes permissible and remarriage with it. And, and the first one is adultery or pornea to be more specific. Sexual immorality in marriage. Sexual immorality in marriage is a sin so grievous so destructive to the marriage that it opens up the possibility of divorce. And I say again, possibility, because it doesn't require divorce. In Jesus' day, both Jewish and Roman law required divorce for sexual immorality of a woman. Uh, but, but according to Jesus' view, reconciliation is possible after immorality, And it would be a a wonderful testimony if there was an immorality for a husband or a wife to accept their spouse back and love them and forgive them. And that would be a wonderful thing. But recognize this, that adultery strikes at the heart of the marriage union like no other sin. It breaks the one flesh union and, and joins you to another in a sort of a one flesh union with them. So listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral, the, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so to join oneself in a sexual union with another person causes a a one flesh like union. It's not marriage. It, it, this is Paul's not saying that if you join yourself to a prostitute, you're married to her. It's, but it's a one flesh like union without the vows, without the commitment. And when that happens, it opens up. It, it, it damages the marriage so much that it opens up the possibility of a legitimate divorce. Now, I would say that that it would be hard-hearted, right? Jesus says, why is there divorce? Because of the hardness of your hearts. It would be likely hard-hearted to look for a, a reason to divorce. And it would be unforgiving not to pursue reconciliation if, God forbid, something like this happened in your marriage. But Jesus does make this exception to the divorce Jesus makes this exception when sexual immorality happens in the marriage. Divorce is adultery, or I should say divorce and remarriage is adultery except in this case. 
And that's the, that's the view where I've, I've landed. That's why Jesus gives this exception. There's, there's something, you know, sometimes people say, well, that's not a very serious view of marriage. Why, why is it, why is, why is it breakable? And what one of the authors that I read this week, and I thought it was really helpful, he said, you know, you could turn that around the other way and you could say, the other view has a low view of adultery. Right? This, this is a, adultery is such a serious sin that Jesus makes an exception for, for breaking apart what God has joined because of, because the person who commits sexual immorality in the marriage has broken it apart already. Now we would want to ask then, well, why doesn't Mark and Luke include it? Now, we're not even going to look at Luke. Luke 16, 18 is just a, is just using the marriage saying of Jesus as an illustration for something else for the law. Um, Mark left it out, but, but here's the thing. Often in, in preaching, often when making a point, exceptions are left out, right? Well, you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching about anger and against the sin of anger, and he doesn't say there's an exception for righteous anger in Matthew chapter 5. Well, why doesn't he say there's an exception for anger? Because he's not talking about all the exceptions. He's talking about what he's talking about, he's trying to drive a point home. And so when you're making a point like that in a sermon like that to a hostile crowd of Pharisees, and you're not really trying to flesh out all of the details of marriages and exceptions and those kind of things, Jesus is just showing the Pharisees that their interpretation of easy divorce leads to the sin of adultery. And, and, there's, and, and a, an exception doesn't need to be given in that case. And so that's why I think Mark doesn't give us the exception. Matthew gives us the exception. Jesus spoke the exception on that day, and that's enough, right? John MacArthur said in his commentary, all you need to do is say it once, and it's, it's biblical code, right? And so there it is. It, Mark didn't need to say it. Luke doesn't need to say it. If Matthew says it, then we need to take Matthew for what he says. And any other view of the exception just really doesn't fit the context. The, the context is marriage. Porneia is a word that in most cases would refer to adultery, but would include other forms of sexual immorality within the marriage. And, what, and, and now we want to go to 1 Corinthians where we see that Paul teaches the same thing that the Lord teaches here. And so let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven. Now, Corinth was a horribly sexual, sexually immoral city. In fact, there's a verb to Corinthianize meant to commit sexual immorality. To be a Corinthian was to commit, to live in a city of sexual immorality. And, and some of the Christians who were turning to the Lord were turning from their former sexually promiscuous ways to such an extent that, and because they had understood that Paul was single, they started to advocate celibacy even in the marriage, even within the marriage. And some of them were even getting divorced to pursue celibacy. And they asked Paul in 1 Corinthians, or before 1 Corinthians, they asked him to clarify some of these things that were happening. 
And Paul says, and we saw this last time, that married people should enjoy one another, that, that they're to give each other their conjugal rights. Verse 3. He recommends that single people and widows stay single like him, but, but he doesn't make that a law. And if they want to get married, they should marry. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then in verse 10, he says, To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Now what does he mean by not I, but the Lord? And and what he means here is that the Lord addressed this thing in his er earthly life. Paul must have known the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew, or if Matthew wasn't written when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, and I didn't look up the, the timings of those, but they, w- they would have been fairly close together, I believe. But if, if Matthew wasn't written yet, Paul had some kind of a, an oral tradition of the teaching of Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And so he says, not I, this is actually something that the Lord addressed in his earthly life. Verse 10 again, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So the, the wife should not separate. That is, should not divorce her husband. And that, that word there, separate, was often used for divorce, but it could also just mean to, to separate. And what's, what's interesting in those two verses that, is that Paul envisions a divorce among believers. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, what's her option? Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. To get remarried would be to, according to Jesus, to commit an act of adultery. And so Paul is just echoing the teaching of the Lord here. This is what the Lord taught. A disciple should not divorce. If it happens for some reason, if divorce happens, maybe in the case of abuse or some other reason, we don't know what the reason is, but if there is some kind of a divorce or a separation, then the option is pursue reconciliation or remain unmarried. Those are your options. Again, it's interesting that that Paul thinks of, of divorce or at least separation that it might occur between believers. This, this would be something outside of adultery. He, he doesn't say that, 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 he doesn't say that this would result in discipline either. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And, and so what do we make out of this? Well, this is some kind of an exceptional case like abuse or maybe rampant sin in the family and, and the people need to be separated. But you'd think if it was rampant sin or abuse that Paul would be pursuing church discipline. And so I don't know exactly what to make, but, but Paul's just allowing an exception for the hardness of their hearts. If, if this happens, if, if a separation occurs, you can't get remarried. You need to be reconciled to your husband or remain unmarried until, until some change happens. So the only option really is reconciliation. But then in verse 12, it deals with something that the Lord didn't speak to on his, in his earthly life. And that's when a believer finds themselves married to an unbeliever. And so let's say you've got two people living in Corinth, living in all kinds of sexual 
sexually immoral behavior and one of them gets remarried. Well, this is what Paul says to them. To the rest, verse 12, I say, not I, or sorry, I, not the Lord. So this is something the Lord didn't speak to. So I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So in verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, if they divorce, if they leave, if they depart, he says, let it be so. Now there's two views on what this means in verse 15. The one is that the brother or sister is not enslaved. And what that means that they're not enslaved is that they're not required to hang on to a marriage that the unbeliever doesn't want. So you're supposed to remain married, but if the unbeliever doesn't want that marriage, you are not enslaved. You can, you don't have to try to pursue this marriage against the unbeliever's will. And with this view, that, that first view, remarriage is not permitted. Now you are to stay single for presumably the rest of your life or until that person passes away. The unbeliever leaves or gets divorced and the believer can let them go, but they cannot get remarried. That's the one view. Now, the other view is that not enslaved means that if an unbelieving spouse departs, the believer is free to remarry. Now, if you think about it, not enslaved is kind of the negative way of saying what was on every certificate of divorce. You are free to marry any man. Remember, that was on every certificate of, of divorce. You are free to marry any man. And so it's this, really this, a negative way of saying the same thing. The believer is not enslaved. And so most people, like I said, the majority view is that you are free to marry any man. And that, that when an unbeliever departs, there's, again, room for remarriage. Remarriage would be permissible. Now, Paul says the Lord didn't speak to this, but really everything that he's teaching is very similar to his exception in Matthew. If you think about it too, the, the unbelieving spouse who doesn't want to stay in the marriage would very likely get remarried. And in Corinth, very likely that they would engage or continue engaging in some kind of sexual immorality. And in both cases here then, it, for abandonment or for ongoing adultery, you can see how the marriage is broken. The marriage vows are broken when the unbeliever leaves and, and goes off and, and, and there's no possibility of reconciliation or when adultery is happening, especially when it's a, a continual unrepentant adultery, you can see that the marriage bonds, the marriage vows are broken. In the one case, there's, there's no opportunity for reconciliation because the unbeliever left. And in the other case, the one flesh union was broken through adultery or some other form of immorality. And so adultery and desertion by an unbeliever are the only reasons given 
where divorce and remarriage is allowed according to Scripture. If separation needs to happen for another reason, then 1 Corinthians seven eleven applies uh, to the married. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so that's where I've landed on this teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, what if you are sitting here and you disagree? Let's say you've, you're, you're here, you're part of it, you've, you've heard teaching on this before, and you disagree. First, first of all, I just want to say, it's okay with me if you disagree with me. I, you don't need to agree with me. You don't have to believe everything that I believe. That's not how we function as a local church. You don't have to believe everything that I believe. Now, let's think about it, though. How would it practically work out if, if we disagreed? And, and, uh, and, and what I would first want to do if you, if you disagree, I would just want to give you some resources and kind of send you on the same journey that I did over the last seven weeks, give you some books to read, and just kind of help you just really dig into some of these things. I, I presented a lot of information today. I studied a lot of things. There's things that I haven't even gotten back to. Like I said at the beginning, I was going to talk about the church history and why did the church fathers not uh, not believe this until the Reformation? And the reason is because they had a, a a bad view of asceticism that was already creeping in in First Corinthians. And a lot of the early church fathers were celibate or even were made themselves eunuchs and things like that. And so they that's that's probably why the early church had a different view than what happened after the Reformation. But there's even things that I haven't gotten into. There's so much here. But okay, let's say you disagree with me. I'm going to give you some resources. Let's say I, you studied it and you still disagree. Okay, well, that, that, that's okay. If you landed on the stricter no divorce and remarriage view, one and two that's in your outline, the view that is maybe stricter on remarriage, but I would say again, softer on adultery. If If that was your view and you're landed there, and let's say one day, God forbid, your spouse committed adultery. Well, then you would have no choice but to forgive and reconcile. And, and that's what I would encourage you to do anyways if something like that happened. I would encourage you to forgive and be reconciled. I would, I would pursue church discipline on your spouse if they continued in unrepentant sin of, of some kind of sexual immorality. And, I, and, and if they repented, I would encourage you to forgive. But worst case scenario... I think you could probably get remarried after a while, after a sufficient amount of time, and you think you can't. Well, you can stay unmarried. That's no problem to me. Um, and so that, that would be one situation. Now, there's a possibility, if you disagree with me, that I would marry someone, or I would perform a wedding, I should say. I would perform a wedding where one of the spouses was divorced because their spouse continued in adultery or because their former unbelieving spouse uh, left them. And I would marry that person and you might not dis uh, agree with that wedding. And I would just say to you, well, you wouldn't have to come to the wedding. But we would support what, what I would see as a legitimate remarriage for those two exceptions. So there, th that would be another situation where, where something different would come up. Now, if you land on view four and you have the more open view of, of divorce and you can get divorced for all kinds of reasons, well, 
I want to talk to you about that too, and, and I think that's more concerning for me. Um, but I don't want to say too much about that. So, <clears throat> if you did land on view four and you had this more open view, um, I would not do your wedding if you wanted to get married when I didn't think it was biblically permissible. And so that's that would be kind of the the situation there. And, and there's really, there's a lot of what ifs. I have a 300-page a, a book on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that has a couple hundred pages of what-if scenarios where it's like, what if this happens? And, what, and like, it's unbelievable all the things that can happen. And, and those things are best handled in a kind of a, a one-on-one counseling situation, and I can't get into all of that here. So, in, in other words... If you disagree with me, I, I think we could live with it, but you know it's, it's up to you if you can live with it or not. And, and so I would just say, come and talk to me. Let's kind of see if we can't work through it a little bit more. But how should we end this thing? You know, if you've been divorced and remarried for some other reason besides abandonment or adultery, then I just need to say to you that that's a sin that needs to be repented of. And repentance means acknowledging it to God and to your spouse, maybe even to your former spouse. And then you're to turn from that sin by not, not by pursuing another sinful divorce, but by committing to your current spouse to never do that again and to be faithful to your vows until death do it part. Until death do you part. Jesus will forgive all sins, including the sin of failing to keep your wedding vows. And so there is forgiveness for this sin. And if you thought of divorcing your spouse, you need to repent of those sinful thoughts. And realize then today that the deadly marriage-destroying sin of porneia or of sexual immorality and everything that leads up to it, sexual sin is extremely dangerous. And if you're caught in it in any way, in any way, if you're caught in it, then, then flee from that sin and seek help because it could and will destroy your marriage. And so any kind of pornea needs to be forsaken. And if you are, can't get free of it, then you need to seek help before it leads to an act of adultery that could ruin your marriage and even your life. I think it's Proverbs chapter 5 talks about for the sake of a, an immoral woman, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. You could lose everything. And so, and, and people don't just fall into sexual immorality. It, it comes by, by little things, little bits, little thinking of, of sinful thoughts and, and allowing those things to fester and allowing those idols to grow. And so beware of the deadly marriage destroying sin of Pernea. And then be faithful to your wedding vows. Love your spouse, no matter how hard it is. To do so glorifies God and pictures Christ's love for His bride, the church. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for this time that we've had together in Your Word. Thank You for the patience of these dear brothers and sisters. And just pray that that You would lead us in the right way, that You would help us to to follow and obey your commandments, that you would help us to turn away from sin, that you would help us to love our spouses and glorify you by 
showing the world the, the love between Christ and his church. We thank you for your love for us, your bride. And we pray that you would help us as we continue in worship now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.